September is Gynecologic Cancer Awareness Month. On this episode of the Women's Health Cast, Dr. Ryan Spencer joins us to talk about endometrial cancer, the most common gynecologic cancer in the United States. We talk about risk factors for endometrial cancer, what diagnosis and treatment look like, and ways to reduce your risk of developing this type of cancer. We also talk about a national disparity in funding for gynecologic cancers compared to other types of cancer. I'm Jackie Askins, and you're listening to the Women's Health Cast from the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. I'd like to thank Dr. Ryan Spencer for joining me on today's episode of the Women's Health Cast. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's entirely my pleasure. I've been looking forward to trying to get on the Women's Health Cast for quite some time. So I invited you today um, to learn a little bit about endometrial cancer. It's a type of cancer we haven't covered yet on the podcast before. Um, So to get started, I guess, what is endometrial cancer? Sure. Uh, The uterus is a very fascinating organ. It does a whole lot, uh, I would say, for the world, really. Um, But the endometrium is a part of the uterus. In fact, it's the inner lining of the uterus. And the way people might know the most about the endometrium is it's the part of the uterus that comes out during a period each month, along with some blood products. And so it's the inner lining of the uterus and, in fact, is responsible for the most gynecologic cancers every year in the United States. I guess I hadn't thought about this part, but is there a difference then between endometrial cancer and uterine cancer? That's a great question. So endometrial cancer is by far the most common type of uterine cancer, but there are other types of uterine cancer. So maybe to take a step step back for a second, the three parts of the uterus is the inner lining called the endometrium, the muscular part of the uterus, uh, which is uh, called the myometrium, and that's the part that contracts for babies to come out during a vaginal delivery. It also is the part that causes cramping uh, during a period. And then there's sort of an outer lining of the uterus that uh, sort of encases the uterus and helps it keep its shape. So there are other types of uterine cancers, specifically called sarcomas, that can affect that muscle uh, body of the uterus, or the myometrium, it's called. So you said endometrial cancer is the most common type of uterine cancer, and how common is it? Great question. So there's going to be, it's going to be estimated that there will be 65,000 uterine cancers in the United States in the year 2020. Do you know where that falls on um, kind of the, the spectrum of other uh, gynecologic cancers where it kind of falls in commonality? Yeah, yeah. So I, ovarian cancer um, gets talked about a fair bit related to GYN cancers because of how challenging it can be to treat. There's going to be about 20 to 25 ovarian cancers diagnosed in the United States in 2020. Cervix cancer uh, is going to be somewhere in the 10 to 15,000 range. And then vulvar cancer, around 5 to 6,000 new cases in 2020. So it sounds like endometrial cancer is quite common comparatively. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It it is by far the most common uh, GYN cancer. So even if you add up all the other GYN cancers together, it won't get up to the number that we'll have for for, uh, endometrial cancer in the coming year. So do we know why endometrial cancer happens or what, um, what can cause it? Yeah, there actually are a wide range of different causes of endometrial cancer, but I certainly can go through some of the risk factors and other genetic factors that we know about 
related to uterine cancer. Um, I may get a little nerdy for a second, but um, that might be part of the reason why you asked me on, um, but that's okay. So some of the factors we know that lead to endometrial cancer are certainly increasing age. I don't think that's a surprise to many people. A lot of cancers get more common as people get older. Some other factors that can cause or be a higher risk for endometrial cancer include being overweight or being obese, uh, having other health conditions like hypertension, high blood pressure, diabetes, and then there's other factors related to uh, if someone has never had children, they're at a slightly higher risk for endometrial cancer. If they've had issues with infertility, that can be a cause as well. If people have ever taken some uh, certain medications that can promote estrogen formation, um, there are certain types of hormone replacement that used to be used that had estrogen-only formulations in it. There's also certain medications that one takes if they've had breast cancer to prevent the cancer from coming back. They can increase the amount of estrogen circulating in the body. And then there's a whole nother type of endometrial cancer that can come through a pathway related to a person's genetics. So there is a uh, hereditary family cancer syndrome that includes endometrial cancer in it. And those people sometimes have other personal or family histories of colon cancer um, that might lead to that diagnosis. You mentioned uh, age, like being older can be kind of a risk factor. Um, what's the average age of endometrial cancer diagnosis? Great question. Um, I'm going to take a moment to highlight something that's, um, once again, maybe a little nerdy, but actually important in the world of endometrial cancer is endometrial cancer itself can be broken up into two distinct types. And it's often referred to as a type 1 endometrial cancer or a type 2 endometrial cancer. Now, the type 1 endometrial cancers are by far more common. Uh, they tend to be less aggressive cancers on average, but not necessarily in every case. And those type 1 endometrial cancers involve all the risk factors we just spoke about in the prior question. The average age for that cancer is about 60 years old. The type 2 endometrial cancers don't tend to have those risk factors like we've already spoken about. They tend to be more involved with mutations in, in, in the genetics or the DNA of the endometrial lining for some reason we don't yet have a great handle on. They're by far less common, but on average, they're certainly more aggressive. And the average age of those type 2 more aggressive endometrial cancers tends to be a little older, in fact, around age 65. I wanted to ask if there's a racial or ethnic disparity in endometrial cancer, if it seems to be more common um, in a racial, one racial group or another. Sure. Unfortunately, endometrial cancer, like many other health conditions, does have some really important disparities in that black people in general are much more likely to um, have lower survival at all ages of endometrial cancer. Black women are also more likely to be diagnosed with those more aggressive type 2 endometrial cancers as well. Are there signs or symptoms of endometrial cancer, something that a change in our bodies that if we notice it might suggest that we should um, follow up with a healthcare provider to see if, if this might be cancer? There are a couple of ways that are really important ones we can talk about related to that. 
And one of them has to do with age, like we've been talking about a little bit so far. Uh, a woman throughout their life uh, has a period that on average in the United States begins in the early teenage years, and on average ends at about age 50. So after a woman goes through the menopause or no longer has a period, they should not have any more vaginal bleeding again in their life. And if they do, it, that person should immediately let one of their physicians know about that. That would then prompt an investigation as to why a woman after the menopause would have vaginal bleeding. And almost always that's going to lead to an ultrasound and or a biopsy of that inner lining of the uterus, a biopsy of the endometrium in some way, shape, or form in order to rule out cancer being the cause of that. There are other reasons one could have bleeding after the menopause, but it's really important to let your doctor know if you ever have that symptom because you want to get that investigated as soon as you can to rule out cancer. Now, there are also times in women before the menopause are diagnosed with endometrial cancer. And in fact, really important to note is that there is an increase of younger women being diagnosed with endometrial cancer, likely for a handful of different factors. If a woman ever experiences abnormal periods that are odd for them that they've never experienced before, um, so that is either an increase in bleeding they might not have experienced, um, bleeding more frequently than they'd ever experienced before, then that should prompt them to talk to either their primary care doctor or their gynecologist. It may not be cancer, and in fact, most times won't be, but it's one of those medical professionals who's going to be able to do the investigation to figure out what the cause of that change in bleeding pattern is. And for some percentage of women, even before the menopause, uh, end up having cancer as the cause. And we just like to make sure women are uh, aware of their bleeding patterns during their periods. And if it ever changes, that's something to discuss with the healthcare provider. So I think you mentioned a little bit about how it's diagnosed, but I'd just like to review it again. Um, once someone, you know, goes to their healthcare team with um, these change in symptoms or um, new, new symptoms, what is the process like for verifying, you know, yes, this is a type of cancer that we need to address? Yeah, the only way to be able to do that ultimately is either a biopsy of the endometrium or that lining of the uterus, which can be done either in the office or it can be done via an outpatient surgical procedure called the dilation and curatage. We often call it a DNC. And oh, both of those accomplish similar things, and that's essentially to get a biopsy of that lining to put it under a microscope and to confirm for someone whether they have a cancer causing that abnormal bleeding or not. So what happens next? If I, um, you know, work with my healthcare team, I have a diagnosis of a type of endometrial cancer or a stage of endometrial cancer, um, what, what do my treatment paths look like? What happens next? Yeah, so that can be a little bit varied uh, based on, as I mentioned, that type 1 or type 2 endometrial cancer, but I certainly can tell you what the average person who has an endometrial cancer might experience, and that might be the most useful for people listening. As I mentioned, most people with endometrial cancer are going to have that type 1 endometrial cancer, most likely related in some way to age and or status of hormones or having had uh, more circulating estrogen for some reason in their body based on those risk factors that I mentioned before. Uh, 
That person generally comes to see a GYN oncologist like myself, my partners, having already had the diagnosis from one of those biopsies in the office or one of those DNCs as an outpatient surgical procedure. And so that gives us a great advantage. We can already talk to people the, the, most times the day we meet them about what a treatment pathway would look like. For the vast majority of people, that's going to include a surgery at the beginning done in a minimally invasive fashion for most people. So small incisions or laparoscopy through which we remove the uterus and cervix, so a total hysterectomy. And for most women after the menopause would include the tubes and ovaries as well. Now for younger women who've not gone through the menopause, there certainly is an important discussion to be had whether taking out the ovaries is the right thing to do. We know the ovaries have really important health benefits for women before the menopause. So we will have that conversation if, if they have not yet gone through menopause. In addition to taking out those specific organs, we also like to make a lymph node assessment. Many cancers spread through the lymph nodes and endometrial cancer is no different. So we also perform something called a sentinel lymph node uh, procedure or biopsy in most women who come to us with endometrial cancer. I wanted to ask you about the sentinel lymph node biopsy because I, I've heard it discussed in our department a lot over the last year or two. Um, it sounds a little new and I, I'm kind of trying to get a better handle on it myself. Um, what does it mean to take a lymph node biopsy, what are you doing in this procedure? Sure, so in general, there are lymph nodes all over the body that have many different functions. Most people probably know about lymph nodes from when they get a, a upper respiratory infection or a cough or a sore throat and they can feel their neck, those lymph nodes recruit certain specific cells to help combat those infections and they get a little swollen and they get a little tender and that's how most people know about lymph nodes. Now, lymph nodes down in the pelvis that are around the cervix and the uterus and the tubes and ovaries um, run along the major vessels of the body so we can identify them in that way. And when we're doing a biopsy of a lymph node in general, no matter where it is, it's essentially identifying the one we want to remove and taking it out. In our surgery, as I mentioned, we're doing that through tiny incisions called laparoscopy. So what do you learn from these sentinel lymph nodes? Yeah, the lymph nodes in endometrial cancer is actually a fascinating history. Um, and only because I really enjoy what I do, I'm going to tell you a little bit of history about it. Um, so even decades ago, uh, you know, go back a ways now, there was a debate about whether every woman with endometrial cancer needed to have all of her lymph nodes taken out or if there were certain specific patients with certain factors of their cancer that didn't need any lymph nodes taken out. So that might sound a little odd because the debate was a little bit about should we take them out in everybody or should we not take them out in some people at all? And the, the, you know, the debates arose about who was right and who was wrong and how do you figure out who the right people are to take them out in and how do you decide who you wouldn't need to take them out in? And that is a real challenge. Um, you know, the thing about medicine is everything you do to somebody has a consequence or a potential for a consequence. So you could see if you were taking out all the lymph nodes in all women with endometrial cancer, the truth is the vast majority of time, you would not find any cancer in those lymph nodes. In fact, there's a very low risk in endometrial cancer to travel to the lymph nodes. So a lot of women were having a lot of lymph nodes taken out who didn't need them taken out and the consequences were sometimes lymph swelling of the legs, 
lymphedema, it's called, um, longer surgical times. Um, anytime you perform more surgery, there's always a higher risk for bleeding, a higher risk of infection, um, and a higher risk for other complications. And so over time, people are trying to figure out, well, how can we best identify the women who might be at risk for cancer traveling to their lymph nodes, but minimize the amount of surgery we have to do on these women to then minimize the consequences of doing more surgery. And the sentinel lymph node technique had been around for quite some time. Um, it was first done in penile cancer, actually, many decades ago, and then uh, was really taken up in fields like melanoma and other skin cancers, and then in breast cancer in the last couple decades. Vulvar cancer, which we also treat in the 2000s, and for endometrial cancer has really taken off here in the last, let's say, five or so years amongst most, um, most practices. How do you figure out which lymph nodes to biopsy in, in your treatment process? Sure. So what we would do is someone is going to be in the operating room with the plan for the hysterectomy, as we talked about before. And we actually take a special dye. And what we do is we inject that special dye into the cervix while the patient's asleep. And so we do that injection. We make sure everything, uh, everything is prepared for surgery. And then we start the surgery, and one of the first things we'll do is we then attempt to look inside and identify how that dye has gone from the cervix and sort of trickled through the lymph channels from the cervix and uterus out into the lymph node areas, which lie along the sides of the uterus. Now, this is actually a really interesting piece because the dye itself can't be seen by the naked eye. You have to have a special infrared filter on your cameras. So what we'll do in the surgery is we have a certain switch on our devices that goes from just regular viewing through a camera to an infrared filter. And we're able to identify the lymph channels and the lymph node to which the dye travels with that special filter. We find the first lymph node it goes to, which is called the sentinel lymph node, or the most important one or the first one outside of the uterus. We remove that particular lymph node, and that's the one we send off to our pathologist to analyze. And that's what gives us the opportunity in the modern day to, one, have a really high chance at detecting if the cancer has spread outside of the uterus of the lymph nodes, but also minimize those potential complications from where in the past we were taking out a whole host of lymph nodes, in some cases, 8, 10, 12 lymph nodes on either side of a patient. So what we used to think we could identify needing to take out 20 to 30 lymph nodes, we now have a really good understanding that we can identify with maybe just two. In that lymph node, then, are you looking for um, like cancer cells that have spread? What, what do you find in a biopsy? That's exactly right. Our pathologists are looking for cancer cells that potentially have traveled outside of the uterus through those lymph channels and into those lymph nodes that we've identified and removed. So how does what you find with that biopsy then affect your further treatment plan? Yeah, it's, it's a really important factor in treatment planning after surgery. So there are, in fact, many endometrial cancer patients, especially with that type 1 endometrial cancer we talked about before, who may not need any additional treatment after their surgery, who after their surgery have a really, really low chance that that cancer ever comes back. So what we're doing with that sentinel lymph node biopsy is trying to identify people who are at higher risk for cancer coming back 
if cancer has traveled into those lymph nodes, those patients are at a much higher risk for cancer coming back. And we would recommend they receive additional treatment on top of just the surgery. So depending on the factors we find, may include chemotherapy or radiation therapy, or in some cases, a combination of both of those to help prevent the cancer from coming back in the future. Is there any way for people to prevent endometrial cancer or reduce our risk of um of possibly developing this type of cancer? Sure. There, there are some things we know that are what we might call protective factors against endometrial cancer. Now, we talked a little bit earlier about some risk factors related to pregnancy and timing of periods and so forth. We know that women who have not had a pregnancy have a slightly higher risk of endometrial cancer. So pregnancy is a known protective factor. Now, that's not to say I would go and recommend to all young patients to have more children to protect against endometrial cancer, but we do know that women who have not been pregnant are at a slightly higher risk. Breastfeeding uh, after having a baby we know is a protective factor against endometrial cancer. So I absolutely would recommend to all women who have a baby as another important health benefit of breastfeeding is a potential decrease in risk of endometrial cancer in the future. We do know that the use of some hormonal contraception throughout a woman's life, so in the form of either oral contraceptive pills or even some newer data suggesting the use of progesterone-containing intrauterine devices to help prevent pregnancy, could be protective against endometrial cancer in the future. There's also uh, data surrounding the idea that weight loss um, can be an important factor in preventing the risk of endometrial cancer. It's been shown in some women who actually uh, have struggle with uh, higher obesity that bariatric surgery can help reduce the risk of endometrial cancer. Also, some data out there suggesting that a physically active lifestyle is also an important preventive measure against endometrial cancer. Um, there are some others, but those are the most important ones I, I think are really relevant for all people to, to be able to know. So I have to admit, I'm also like, I also wanted to talk to you to shift gears a little bit, um, about some research that I know you've done, not specifically related to endometrial cancer, but kind of, um, so also September, we put out our gynecologic cancer podcast, and we're usually leading up to our Sparkle of Hope annual fundraiser, which raises funds for um, very important gynecologic cancer research. And this year, it's 2020, things are different this year. So we're holding our event online, and our focus this year is raising funds for some pilot research grants, which is really exciting. And I wanted to talk to you in particular because I know you published a paper um, called Disparities in the Allocation of Research Funding to Gynecologic Cancers by Funding to Lethality Scores. And my understanding of this paper was it kind of laid out a, a gap in funding for research into gynecologic cancers, into women's health cancers. Um, and I wanted to learn from you, you know, why this funding disparity is important and what it kind of means for our progress in terms of you know, understanding, detecting, and treating gynecologic cancer. Yeah, so I, you know, I'm really happy you wanted to ask about this because it's sort of another passion that I have. And the research that we, we've done, and then I'll maybe shed a little insight into where we're headed from here, we really, we didn't know the answer to whether if you look at different types of cancer by the amounts of money they receive for research, 
are there some who receive more than others? And is there a disparity in how much each receive? Um, we didn't go into that with a preconceived idea that GYN cancers were going to be more or less funded. We were asking an honest question. If we took a really standardized metric of how you measure amount of money different cancer sites get, um, is there a difference? And lo and behold, there are, which may not ultimately be surprising to everyone, but there are really important disparities in that ovarian, endometrial, and cervix cancer, so the, the top three most common gynecologic cancers, appear to be receiving lower amounts of funding if you compare that to how many years of life they take from women every year. And, you know, we, we just think that's a really important thing to highlight for everyone to understand. Now, we've gone at, as soon as we understood this information, we've sort of gone at this in a lot of different directions. We've been to Capitol Hill in Washington to make sure we talk about these funding disparities. I've had colleagues go to the National Cancer Institute and talk about these disparities as well. Um, so we certainly are continuing the fight on a big picture level. How do we reverse these trends? We're currently working on an update to that paper, which includes three additional years of funding and um, metrics of how many years of life are lost to these cancers. We anticipate that will be done later this year, early next year. We're also looking into another important element of funding is something called training grants. So when really promising young, smart, clinician, doctors, and researchers come out of training. There's a certain type of award they can receive from the National Institutes of Health or National Cancer Institute um, that help push their research careers forward. And so we're currently also analyzing if there are disparities in who gets these awards, what cancers they're researching, and how much money they're getting for those awards when they come out. Um, another project that we're hoping to have done by the end of this year, early next year. But I think what all that really feeds into is we're certainly going after this important issue from a big picture standpoint, uh, lobbying in Washington and in our governments. But also, if we bring it back down to a community level, I think it's really important to understand that there are big, important ways that people in our community can reverse that tide right here in Madison and at the University of Wisconsin. And so... I can tell you as having done research now for a chunk of years, how an idea gets started really starts with even a small amount of money that you can use to get some what's called pilot data or initial data to then convince bigger organizations that have lots of money that the thing you're wanting to research and the thing you're thinking about has merit and could be really, really important to study in a big way. And if you can't get those small amounts of money at the beginning to get that initial data and information to those bigger agencies, you are going to be uh, you're going to be well behind others who are pushing forward their ideas. So the the money raised at Sparkle of Hope, the money raised here in our community, Dane County, Madison, University of Wisconsin, actually can have a huge impact on the trajectory of research for GYN cancers because that's providing us some of that small amount of money to get really smart ideas, prove their concepts, and then take them to bigger agencies that have larger amounts of funding to really move forward what we need to learn about gynecologic cancers for the future. I know we've had a recently a very cool example of this with um, Dr. Lisa Barillet, uh, who started a, a Sparkle project a few years ago and was able to turn that data into a really cool NIH grant. So, you know, this happens and 
the support that we get from Sparkle is just invaluable. It's very, very wonderful. Well, I'm going to take this chance, since you threw it out there, to um, say a lot of really nice things about someone who is a really good friend. Lisa Barrelet, I've known now, um, gosh, for 11 years. Uh, when I was just a lowly resident back in Boston, <laughs> she was a fellow in gynecologic oncology. And uh, I can tell you, uh, Lisa was someone who at the beginning I really looked up to. She's now come to Madison. We came here the same year, actually. Um, I came as a fellow. She is a faculty person. And you're exactly right, has taken some of that money from Sparkle and turned it into not only a big research grant, but in fact, uh, the most prestigious type of research grant that anyone in this country can get. It's called an R01, which is a lot of numbers and letters that don't mean a lot to some people. But an R01 from the National Institutes of Health is the most prestigious research award anyone can receive. And the reason, part of the reason she got there is because she's brilliant. But another part of the reason she got there um, is because right here in Madison, we're able to raise some small funds to get really smart ideas pushed forward. And I'm sure that, uh, I won't speak for Lisa, but maybe I will. I know she has a lot of gratitude for the people who have given their money and time for Sparkle of Hope and to raise some of those funds that we do every year in our event. And it's really hard to tell you just how critical that is for people to give their time and money for Sparkle of Hope to move the field of GYN cancer forward. This year's event will be held virtually, which is an awesome opportunity to expand our audience beyond the people who can usually join us in Madison. So it's going to be a really lovely evening, easy to join from the comfort of everyone's home. Um, we're really looking forward to it. And um, as always, super grateful to the, the many supporters and committee members and everyone who helps the event happen. And um, I hope we'll see you there. Yeah, well, I can tell you, in all honesty, we are a ton of fun. <laughs> We've got great patients. Patients of mine have served on the Committee for Sparkle. It's just a really great time. I, I mean, honestly, I, I think that, you know, we're, we're not just folks who, who geek out over numbers and letters and, and, and lab projects and stains in, in the lab, right? We, we actually have a great, great love for what we do and a great, great love for the people we, we serve. And it's a fun evening because you, you get to see that in us um, outside of the clinic. And, and that's what part of the reason I really love the night. So this year's Sparkle of Hope is coming up September 18th, 2020. And there'll be information in the show notes for this episode if anyone wants to register. It's a free event, a wonderful program. It should be a lot of fun this year. Um, Dr. Spencer, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. Oh, it's been a great pleasure of mine, Jackie. I always love talking to you. And thank you so much for having me on. You can join us at the free virtual Sparkle of Hope Gala on Friday, September 25th at 7 p.m. Central Time. Learn more and register at sparkleofhope.org. The Women's Health Cast is a production of the UW-Madison Department of OBGYN. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can find the Women's Health Cast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WISCOBGYN. Let us know how we're doing, rate and review us in the podcast app, and let us know what women's health issues you'd like to learn about. Thanks for listening. <laughs>